So we were, in effect, hanging between, uh, like Muhammad's coffin, between heaven and earth. We had some people who were neutral towards us, we had many who were opposed, and we had very, very few who were supportive. In the spring of 1950, the Irish News Agency was born. It was born in an Ireland without a television service, with a limited news service from what was then Radio Erin, and in lean times in the newspaper business. In early 1950, the Irish Times ran to just eight pages. The news agency was the creation of the external affairs minister, Sean McBride. It was not to survive the decade. One of the early staff was Kevin O'Kelly. I think we were at a terrible disadvantage from the first thing because it was quite a ridiculous situation. The only place we could sell Irish pictures taken in Ireland was in England. And the only place we could tell pictures, we could only sell in Ireland pictures that were not taken in Ireland. So it was, the whole thing was ridiculous, really. It was a non-starter financially, right from the start. But why could you not sell Irish pictures in Ireland? Well... I don't understand. I've never been a politician much, but as far as as I can understand it, the simple thing was that the NUJ wouldn't wear it because it said jobs would be lost. The same reason that they wouldn't wear an INA distributing court reports or parliamentary reports because they said jobs would be lost. I know it was our idea, Douglas Gatesby's idea, as far as I understood it, that we should be an Irish PA. And we weren't allowed to be. So, financially speaking, we were a dead duck right from the beginning because of what I think still, as a member of the NUJ, was an extremely short-sighted policy. It would have created jobs here and abroad if the NUJ had allowed it to have a good home base, but it just would not do that. Problems from the beginning. They faced the man chosen as managing director of the Irish news agency, Conor Cruz O'Brien. He was then with Sean McBride's own department, External Affairs. Uh, Sean McBride, who of course was responsible for the passage of the act that created the agency, uh, he had originally intended that the managing director uh, should be uh, a party member, a member of the Atlanta Public Party, uh, the late Noel Hartnett. Uh, But Around about the time the agency came into being, there were difficulties developing within Kana Public, uh, and strong differences of opinion between uh, Sean McBride and Noel Hartnett. Uh, so Noel Hartnett refused the offer of the managing directorship, and uh, McBride had to fill it in a hurry. He apparently then decided that he didn't want to put a politician uh, into it. Uh, and uh, requested me, and it was really uh, as much an order as a request, uh, to, uh, I was then councillor in charge of press and information at the Irish, at the Department of, of External Affairs, as it then was, and he asked me to take over uh, as managing director, uh, which I did. Uh, there was a board of five uh, Roger Green, uh, as chairman of the agency, took a very active interest in the agency, a very strong interest in it. Uh, myself as managing director, uh, Noel Hartnett, uh, Pathero Curry, who was the fifth, I ought to remember, but I don't. Um, but the... Uh, I suppose the most active members of the board were the uh, 
chairman and myself, and we worked in close association there. We were responsible for the recruitment of the staff and so on. The address of the Irish news agency was in Fleet Street, Dublin's Fleet Street. But Dolores Rocket, one of the early staff, recalls for a short time there had been another address. When they opened first, uh, they got three or four rooms over um, Domas advertising was there in the Grafton's at the time and Peter Owens was still head and um, they took this the next floor and we were all scrooged into these sort of few rooms you know and I can remember when I went for, to be interviewed first for the I started out as a secretary in there um, just waiting for the time when I'd become a journalist, you know. And um, when I went in first, there were cables all over the place, so they were just setting up. And then after about a month, when I duly gave notice wherever I was working at the time, I went back in and it was all organised, but there were only a few weeks in business at the time. But um, it was very different from, from what it was when we went up market and moved down to, to Fleet Street. Not that I ever liked it, because Fleet Street was in a basement and you were working in artificial light all day. Now it was huge, but... I never felt it was a sort of, you know, well, either conducive or healthy place to work in. You know, you were downstairs the whole time. You never saw the light of day. and um, But it was vast and they had plenty of room for teleprinters and whatever and extra staff. But when we were in Grafton Street, it was very funny. I think every budding young journalist in the country wanted to be part of the Irish News Agency. And there were clatter loads of Ad, uh, applications for jobs coming in, whether f- stringers, freelance, it didn't matter what, as long as somebody was part of the action, they were happy. So they set up this sort of round Ireland trip to interview all the potential young talent, and uh, away they went. And um, they, they, there must have been about a week or ten days doing their thing around the country, checking out on the talent, which I'm sure didn't please a lot of the provincial newspapers who were, look, could see them losing their, their cherished bright boys. But uh, they set up a, a, a quite a, um, a surprisingly wide um, you know, network of, of, of talent and stringers, who, all of whom contributed all sorts of things. I think there were stories dug out of the woodwork that we never knew existed until the agency came into operation, quite honestly. One young journalist who came to the agency from the Irish press was Brendan Mallon, who now lives in Boston. He understood that the aim of the agency was to report Irish news abroad. That was the aim of the agency as put forward by Sean McBride in the Dáil. Export, uh, particularly to the uh, newspapers in the United States. The reason we, and I would use these words advisedly, went overboard in uh, trying to serve the papers domestically, internally, was uh, almost a paranoia to get away from state subvention as far as possible. The more money we could make on the home front, the less we would have to to ask the government for. If we couldn't develop an income nationally, we were going to have to ask the government for more and more, as we were doing, and governments don't like that. So we thought we could, in effect, serve two objectives. One was the objective set out by McBride and the Dáil Expo. The other objective was financial, to make money on the servicing of news to the domestic press. And by gathering money from that, we would eventually ease the burden on the exchequer. 
We never reached that stage. Well, it was a very vague brief, and they, the question of the expectations surrounding the agency were also rather vague. Uh, I think McBride's intention was that it should have a, the name of a news agency, but I think he basically saw it as a propaganda agency. He wouldn't have accepted that description of it, but I think that's what he had in mind. And it's certainly what it would have been uh, if Noel Hartnett had been managing director. So I think that's what he must have intended. Uh, But when we uh, got going, the first question we had to determine really was, uh, are we going to run this as a bona fide news agency? uh, Or are we to run it as a propaganda thing? Uh, And uh, the decision taken, uh, Roger Green took the lead on this and I supported him. Uh, was that we should uh, run a bona fide news agency and that it would not be a propaganda agency. Uh, And that is, in fact, how it functioned. McBride wasn't altogether pleased with that, but nor did he indicate any active displeasure. He really gave us our heads. I think he had other uh, things on his mind. And uh, Noel Hartnett, uh, though, as I say, he would have run it as a propaganda agency himself, uh, he accepted in the circumstances that it should run this way. And there were uh, relations within the board of the agency uh, remained uh, amicable uh, throughout, and good relations also with the staff. Naturally, when jobs were scarce for newspaper people, the brave new agency seemed a promising place to be. Aidan O'Hanlon had had a disagreement with the editor of the newspaper where he worked. He was then invited to join the staff of the INA. So how did Ireland's new agency differ from a newspaper office? Well, the clock, really, because it was a, 20, it was a, a 24-hour clock. Uh, this is the essential difference, even though one would have been used to working erratic hours in... In a, a, in a newspaper, but when you went into a news agency, you had you know, not one master, but masters all around the world, all demanding uh, their quota of your energy and your time, uh, with of course different, totally different deadlines to work to. So there was it was an unceasing round. I'm not saying that one had to work around the clock, but you 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 had to keep this in mind all the time and 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 work accordingly and and put up with uh, even more erratic hours than than you had been used to uh, that also plus the to get into a maybe slightly more technical area that you you had to look at every news story uh, not from one point of view from uh, as traditionally the Irish readers point of view but now you had to uh, assess it and and you know decide of what interest is this to the reader in uh, in in Kansas City or in London or in Berlin or Paris or wherever so it gave you a, it gave you a, a whole uh, injection of a, a whole different uh, news sense uh, in, in, your, uh, in your assessment of what you were about. The money wasn't great in journalism. It really wasn't. You know, you were... Uh, you, when, when you'd send stuff off, for instance, the Empire News for the, for the filler, you got about five bob for it. I survived on it when I, when I started freelance first, I can tell you. But um, I th- it was probably that, and then I suppose there were young, there were 
sort of ambitious, hungry, uh, wanted to be associated with something that was very new. We all did. There was a great air of excitement always about it. I always remembered that, that it wasn't all, all great, you know, you had your problems, I suppose, anywhere you'll have that. But there was a sort of always a feeling of anticipation when the, every day, you got up every day with this thought of, well I did anyway and I was young and ambitious too that something marvellous was going to happen and very often it did and uh, there was a, a, that sort of excitement about the place for so long I think you know. At the age of 19 Michael Finlan arrived from the Western People. He was drawn by the excitement promised by a news agency in Dublin. Uh, we may not have fully succeeded but uh, from, from the way I saw it as a young fellow coming up there, uh, I was quite excited by it. It was full of very talented people from Fleet Street. There was uh, people like Jack Smith from Galway. Jack had been uh, a war correspondent with Reuters, uh, had landed at Arnhem and wrote a novel about it, had covered uh, the peace treaty in, in the Pacific area. There was uh, O'Dowd Gallagher, or Do- O'Dowd Gallagher, actually, I think he liked to call himself. O'Dowd Gallagher had been either with the Daily Express or the Daily Mail and had been in the 30s uh, with Evelyn Waugh in Abyssinia at the time that Waugh wrote uh, Scoop. And uh, then there was a fellow called Rushworth Fogg. Rushworth Fogg was the features editor, brilliant writer. And he had a deputy, uh, Philip Rooney, a very uh, successful Irish novelist, uh, Philip who wrote Captain Boycott, and died uh, sadly, uh, prematurely. Uh, There was, of course, um, John Healy was one of the cub reporters there at the time who went on to make a name for himself as backbencher and uh, one of uh, the remarkable pundits uh, in Irish journalism. Uh, There were many others. Des Fisher, who was in RTE, was there. Douglas Gageby, of course. Douglas Gageby was the guiding light from the early days, really, was brought in. as a, I remember that the night he arrived, there was a party, there was a Christmas party on in the offices, and Douglas arrived in looking very dashing and debonair. This was our new boss, and uh, he, he was uh, taking over as managing editor. I found the agency a tremendous experience uh, professionally and personally. They were a very devoted and diligent crowd, a small organisation it was. I learned a lot, and anyone from any newspaper, I think, would have benefited by being there because you learned how to shift news fast, you learned how to be accurate, and you learned how to work very long hours. That was one of the things. I think it was a great shame that the proprietors did not take up the idea because a news agency should ideally be owned by the publishers, by the newspapers, a co-op, just as AP is or was anyway. And that couldn't be worked, so McBride launched this as an official government agency, which put a stigma on it, unfortunately, because the people who worked there for it were straightforward journalists. If we had had the INA going as a going concern in 1968, we could have had our message across to the world, quite straightforward, about what was going on in the north of Ireland. And uh, we must be one of the few countries in the world that doesn't have such a service. Now, in my time in the agency, we tried to get a courts service going and a parliamentary service. In other words, we would issue the, the words. The papers could then add their own particular correspondence to it. 
and we guaranteed to the union, to the NUJ, that no journalist on the newspaper staffs would lose his or her job if we set this up. We were guaranteed, in other words, to keep them all in place and not to get rid of anyone, not to cut down. That was turned down. But I think the bigger fault was on the part of the proprietors who should have seen that this the institution of a news agency would have made their papers more efficient and more attractive. The Irish Times gave a little help, the press a little grudging help. Other people were bitterly hostile to it, bitterly hostile. That hostility, as Brendan Mallon found, came particularly from Middle Abbey Street. A great deal of the independent opposition was due to the fact that many of its senior executives in the editorial department held rather valuable connections outside Ireland in the uh, sense of freelance operations with Associated Press, with Roger, with Exchange Telegraph and uh, with several newspapers. And they felt that... uh, they feared, I think, that we were going to supplant them with these people. We had no intention of doing that. We hoped that the agency would, in effect, supplement but not supplant, the same as the uh, uh, Press Association does in Great Britain. But uh, also we were making things a little awkward because while they were free to milk the day's product in the new sense and send it out, there would be no question when we were sending the same thing, there were calls back coming and said, this Irish news agency is saying so-and-so. This uh, was a little bit, I'd say, awkward for them and made them work a little harder for their freelance income. Therefore, we were not popular. Why wasn't the agency supported by the newspapers? At the time, Hector Legg was the editor of the Sunday Independent. Well, we had our own staff. Why should we be depending on government propaganda? We had our own staff of reporters. No necessity to use outside material, which was going to all the other offices anyway. And what was your attitude towards the agency when it was set up as, a, as an editor? At that time, I was no way anti it. It was set up, but as time went on, you found that it was useless. It was government propaganda. We were getting government propaganda from other countries, which always went into the waste paper basket, and we knew that the Irish propaganda going abroad was getting the same fate and was costing the taxpayers money so why should we have it? You knew Sean McBride who in effect had set up the agency. Oh I knew him well I was very friendly with Sean. Did, did you talk to him about the yeah, agency? Yeah I did yeah and I said to Sean we discussed it and my attitude to Sean was Sean if you want to have an Irish news agency pay for it out of your own pocket not out of mine and other people's pockets. There was a certain antagonism, I mean, the, the antagonism, the, the, the spearhead was in, in Middle Abbey Street, uh, the independent newspapers. Now, not all of the, the group, but certainly the, the, the most important paper, this is the Irish Independent, um, then as, as, as now, uh, they were adamant in having nothing to do with INA. And I, I think, from what I could gather, the to some extent, at any rate, this was a, a, the result of a, a personality clash between uh, the the editor of the Independent in those days and his immediate advisers. Uh, I had worked on this was uh, Frank Geary was editor at the time, and his immediate advisers. Well, I had worked uh, earlier in my career under Frank Geary, and I 
I, I knew that he was a, a man who uh, wasn't going to lightly take direction from anybody. He was the editor of by far the most important paper in Ireland. And I think INA, uh, when they approached him uh, to interest him in taking their service, I think they, 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 they rubbed him the wrong way and uh, uh, relationships were never uh, were never cordial. It, it, to the extent indeed that um, that not alone did they decline to take the service, but but as I remember, they were they were you know consistently critical of the whole concept of of INA. On the other hand, uh, uh, upstairs in Midlavi Street, you had the Sunday Independent and uh, what was another paper, the Irish Weekly Independent, now long defunct. They uh, they they took INA uh, material and uh, I can remember writing quite an amount for which appeared uh, in 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 that part of the group. Uh, the the uh, the Irish Press and the Irish Times, as I remember, they were they were disposed. They they used material and and the Evening Mail was a great standby for us. They took uh, columns of material from us. But there again, uh, it comes back to um, what a point I made earlier, wondering about the economics of the thing. I mentioned some of the coverage stories which I did in, in, in Belfast, and I remember phoning this material down to directly to the Evening Mail. At, it must have been a pretty enormous cost standing in a, in a phone kiosk out in uh, White Abbey. I seem to remember the murder trial, and I was there for, I'm sure, an hour phoning material directly into the Evening Mail. Uh, you know, it was material which, as I said, really didn't add up to anything from the, the, the whole INA, the philosophy upon which it was based. Um, but the Evening Mail, for example, were very glad to get this pretty cheap uh, copy, really. Uh, the... That was the that was the scene in Dublin. Whatever about Aidan Lohanlon's occasional visits to the north, the agency relied for most of the time on just one man in Belfast. He was Patrick Scott. Well, the the job was uh, to open uh, a bureau or an office, and then to cover the news not only in the city but uh, over the entire six counties. Uh, the job similar to what I had been had doing for 16 years as Northern Editor of the Irish Press. And you were to do this job single-handed? I was to do it single-handed. I think the main idea was uh, that while the Dublin... while the main activities of the agency were centred in Dublin and in the 26 counties, that uh, they, for... For, for for reasons, for obvious reasons, they had to have some kind of uh, to, uh, an area in which they were going to show the flag in the north of Ireland because the main object of the setting up of the Irish News Agency according to the articles of its foundation was uh, to counter uh, unfavourable propaganda that had been emanating uh, from partly from the north of Ireland and, and uh, by visiting journalists and appearing not only in the British press but also in the American uh, and uh, European press. And as you understood it, uh, the stories that you wrote for the agency were to be sold abroad. They were to be, they were to be sold... They, they were to be sold originally throughout Ireland 
England uh, and uh, abroad. But after about six months, there was considerable opposition uh, to uh, to the agency, not only by members of the NUJ, of which incidentally I had been a member for 14 years, but uh, also by certain politicians. Uh, and that hostility to the agency continued even to, to the floor of the doll. And they succeeded in, uh, in forcing the agency to concede that the stories that were collected within the 26 counties uh, would not be uh, issued by the agency to papers in the 26 counties. Jim McGuinness, also from the Irish press, was appointed to run the agency's operations in London. I was the only staff member to begin with, and it was part of my job in the early stages, of course, was to set the agency up from scratch, that is, acquire premises and recruit staff. And that was the first thing I started to do. I'd never done anything like that before. Nonetheless, it uh, wasn't too difficult because uh, I knew the London scene very well at that time, and uh, acquiring an office was simply getting something that you could afford in a place where you wanted it. And so I got that and recruited the staff, and we had a very good staff. Was it nonetheless a small-scale operation? Oh, yes, it was a very small-scale operation, very small-scale. There was a dual-purpose animal, if you like, And it was my job to report to Dublin on matters, particularly of Irish, matters of Irish interest from London. And, of course, to to see that news coming from Ireland to London was quickly and universally distributed in Fleet Street. That was my job, in, in, in essence. No matter what the staff claimed, some of the newspapers in Dublin continued to look on the agency with suspicion. Hector Legg. It would be looked upon suspiciously like all government propaganda. And no, I couldn't see any major newspaper or even minor newspapers. In the Irish provincial papers might possibly have taken some, but I, I hardly think that they would either. Yet people who worked in the agency said it wasn't uh, propaganda, it wasn't directed by the government, there wasn't interference. They could hardly say anything else. They couldn't say anything else. They had to deny, of course, there was propaganda. But we all know that government information is propaganda. External affairs get out something now. Uh, I think they send it monthly uh, to all their embassies and so on. But they take out all the beautiful pieces about what's happening, what suits the government of the day. And, of course, once it arrives in the New York Times or the Washington Post or somewhere, the London uh, Times in London, the Guards and so on, it's... Waste paper basket, propaganda. No time for it. we have our own staff. If there's something happening in Ireland, be it a Dublin a general election, as you know, all the leading papers in Britain and out and other countries now will send their own correspondents here to Dublin to cover the election for themselves in their own way. They wouldn't take propaganda from an Irish news agency about the election because all government point of view only. Well, certainly, I didn't regard it as propagandist, and I had never. I was a journalist, and I wouldn't have taken a job as a propagandist unless I would have taken it as a propagandist if that was openly disclosed and I was being paid for it, and it was acknowledged that that was my function. Because uh, it's quite common for journalists to do that and work for newspapers which have a certain 
political attitude or whatever and do their best openly to advance that attitude. I see nothing wrong with that. But certainly I wouldn't work for a news agency that was really uh, something masquerading as a news agency and was intent on putting out propaganda because I would have just thought that was a waste of time and money. But wasn't the agency very conscious of the time that the image of Ireland abroad had in some ways to be improved, shall we say? Yes, uh, the agency was no doubt conscious of that and to some extent there was misrepresentation of Ireland abroad by the agencies, just as there is now, by the way. Uh, My own view was that the agency could do very little by itself in that regard and that the the improvement uh, had to take place in Ireland and we had to put things right in Ireland. And if things were right in Ireland, uh, we would catch up with any untruths very easily after that. Well, my job, uh, insofar as I didn't necessarily myself distribute any copy, I did keep in touch with uh, the senior people in Fleet Street and tried to convince them uh, of our very good intent and to give them an idea of what they could expect from us. Uh, But I also, I had very good contacts in London on everything affecting Ireland, with the result that I was able to uh, compete very successfully with other Irish journalists who were, by the way, extremely good. They often competed very successfully with me. Happy to acknowledge that. But I too got my fair share of good stories and I sent them to Dublin. And you recruited the staff? Yes, I did. How many did you recruit? Uh, I recruited uh, one permanent man and then Joe Gallagher, uh, who was the boss and who had wide-ranging English journalist acquaintances uh, put me in touch with a couple of people who acted on a part-time basis, which was a good idea. So all in all, how many people could you call upon? I could call upon myself, another person, and three part-time people. But then you must remember, I had very good contacts myself, uh, Irishmen in British newspapers, Irishmen in even American newspapers, and of course Irishmen in Irish newspapers. So I I fairly well knew uh, how to get copy when I was looking for it, and of course we paid for it. Jim McGuinness. And some people in the INA believed it had opened up, as television was to do in the next decade, a window in Irish life. They brought a lot of new sidelines, I think, on Irish life. That Some of it whimsy, I must admit. But good, solid features on, on things that were around the country that nobody had really bothered or thought about writing up. And then, you see, with their sort of international connections for them from the, the heads that were running the whole thing, um, they, they were sending this stuff out to many places that the, your average journalist would never think of trying, or probably they wouldn't have the connection to try anyway, but you had extremely able people there from Fleet Street and uh, they knew, they had their connections and they had the contacts and they knew where to send the stuff and I think that uh, from that point of view it did a lot to sort of spread the word that we were here uh, the, the country was here and, and alive and kicking and living down in Valley, well in a hinge or somewhere but um, they did an awful lot of feature work that would probably never have been touched, only that the agency came into operation to do it. Others were less optimistic in those days. Kevin O'Kelly had joined the news agency as picture editor. 
Ah, extremely frustrating. So much so that I think my morale and the morale of all the people in the pictures uh, section was very low from the start and kept up only by the enthusiasm, really, of Jack Smith, the news editor at the time. He was a marvellously enthusiastic, ebullient creature. And, but for him, I think, the place would have faded despite Dr. Scagebee's best effort. He was very fortunate, I think, to have had Jack Smith on the desk. Jack Smith was a torrent of ideas for pictures, embarrassingly so. I used to be embarrassed. Every day before I came in, Jack Smith would have a list ready of all the suggestions of pictures. But, of course, we could take the picture, but where can we sell them? Where can we sell them? We couldn't sell them here. Obviously, pictures you take in or near Ireland or Dublin are most marketable in Dublin or Ireland. And we had to... Our only real steady market was the Sundays, the British Sunday papers. This was a regular thing, and that was really the only place we had any kind of a steady market. And to a lesser extent, the quality British magazines like uh, Horse and Hound and Country Life. Sunday, pic- Sunday paper pictures are very mundane and uninteresting. They want pretty girls, or they want uh, grotesques of one sort and another. Really very unimaginative pictures was what they wanted and I'm afraid that's what we were forced to give them. One of the main... Our bestseller ever, though, I contradict myself, we used to distribute, apart from the Sunday papers, we did send out a service to the continent, to the various national continental agencies and these provided a a secondary but steady source of income. I remember one of the bestsellers we ever had was a picture Wolf Schuster took of the angels under the Christmas tree at the mansion house at Christmas time. And there were letters of congratulation all over Europe for that picture, but that was the exception. We just happened to hit it on the bottom. But there are very, very few occasions in Ireland where you could generate a picture like that. The agency had to market its news and pictures. Douglas Gageby understood the need to sell both to Britain and abroad. Yes, there, there, there was. Uh, uh, we were a, a, a commercial concern, as well as being, uh, as well as having, you know, ideas, if you like, above our station. <laughs> yes, indeed. But uh, no, none of it was discreditable stuff. None of it, it was go- good quality copy. You didn't feel you were lowering standards. No, because our uh, our aim was a twenty-four hour news service. If some of the energy went into writing feature stuff, that also helps to peg down interest in Ireland and I certainly I don't think anything that went out, it wasn't what perhaps the founders would have thought uh, high diplomatic uh, stuff because uh, they're not. no one is interested in getting diplomatic notes from any uh, foreign news agency. One of the talented writers encouraged by the agency in Dublin was Brendan Behan. His stories were sold by the agency to Sunday papers in London. Dolores Rocket remembers him coming into the office. He he was doing work for for the feature department at, and uh, he used to be in and out, still in the torn jacket and the open neck shirt, you know, and the, and the funny raincoat. And... Uh, he he would he would drift in you know and you'd think that he wasn't wasn't bothered very much but he really was a very hard working technician he he polished he worked an awful lot to get the thing as he wanted it it was a sort of in a way I often think now that a good description of Brendan would be the art that conceals art because he um, 
you felt at the end of it that he had just sat down in between a couple of beers and run it off but he hadn't he'd worked every word with polished and thought about and, and worked and uh, I mean when you saw the the typescript because I had to deal with it um, it was over it was overwritten and overprinted and he had a terrible typewriter but nevertheless you could see that he had corrected and worked quite a lot quite hard on what he was doing he he um he just didn't sort of toss off a piece of, out of the back of his head. He really didn't. Whatever impression he, that may have been given, that he was like it, he wasn't. He was. He worked very hard to be good. There were some brilliant writers on the on the, on the staff of INA in those days. I mean, I can recall uh, people like like Philip Rooney and uh, Lachlan McLean, who who died recently, uh, and and others, who are who are very professional people. Um, the, I, I, I must say, looking across the, that big open space in, in in INA, in the Irish News Agency, we were at one end of it, uh, the hard news people, and across the way then were the, the feature writers, and I always envied them and wished I could join them or be invited to join them because, you know, inevitably they had a, a, a much more relaxed life than we had, the hard news people. They They could take their time and they could... Uh, concentrate on 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 building up uh, the the type of timeless material uh, on on Ireland uh, that um, that would hopefully sell in the uh, the high the high quality newspapers and magazines around the world. This was what this was their what their assignment was. I did a little of this. Uh, I loved that work. I think I was more that kind of a really uh, more of a that kind of a. Uh, a journalist and the chap who's you know rushing in and screaming out to clear the main pages type of thing you know the Hollywood journalism uh, wasn't wasn't so much uh, my scene. Philip was a lovely man he was on the staff he was feature editor there and he really he did an amount of work he really did he was a very laid-back quiet man a charming man and um, never got hassled you know and uh, he was. He wasn't very strong even at that time. But uh, he would come in every day on the on the train, and um, he he just he worked. He did an enormous amount of work. He 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 produced an enormous amount of very very good stuff in the feature department there, and uh, it was a joy to work with him. As a matter of fact, he was the one that landed the first feature I ever did. He 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 marketed it for me in the Herald. So, uh, but he really was. Uh, he was he was tremendous. I think he's one of the, I think, under sort of praised writers of our time. Really, Philip was. He had a marvelous turn of phrase. He was a great technician, Philip. I always felt. Can you remember what that first feature was? The one I did. Yes, I can. Strangely enough, it was about babysitting a cat. <laughs> it's not daft, but anybody who knows me will realise that I'm very cat conscious. You know, I I adore cats, but that that was that was the one. Philip thought it was very funny, and he he flogged it, and I made a few bob out of it. I think I got a fiver for it, which was rich as untold at that time. You know, talented writers like Philip Rooney, the agency may have had, but in those days, who was running the show on the floor? The guiding light in the agency, if you're talking about the formative years, was uh, Joseph P. Gallagher from. Uh, England. He had worked with Reuters, he had worked with British United Press, and he had a long, long experience in Fleet Street and uh, uh, quite, what I would say, an impressive record. He was appointed general manager. 
and uh, he had the advantage over all of us in the technical sense that he had worked on wire services, as we call it, which means news agency. Now, very few of us, none of us had, I should say, so that he was the man to set up the technical base for the agency. And he did that rather well. Uh, but uh, if he's uh, deceased now, and I hesitate to say anything harsh about him because he was a good friend of mine and a, a tremendous worker, he tended to uh, look at the agency as a counterpart of the big agencies in which he worked. You know, that we were going to be to Ireland what Ryder was to Britain. And of course, if we survived for 50 years, we never could reach that status. The Laskies were too much. But he was an enthusiast, and he worked exceedingly hard. Conor Prus O'Brien was appointed as managing director at the price of salary of £300 a year. And he had the job of the political oversight of the agency, I would say, because the money that floated us and the money that kept us going to all came from the estimate of the Department of External Affairs, now Foreign Affairs. So Connor was the uh, managing director and he gave every moment he possibly could to the agency. But the difficulty was that he was also holding down a rather onerous position in external affairs. He was counsel of the information section and eventually he was promoted to the United Nations. So he couldn't give it full time. Uh, he, if he was going to do anything for his department, which he was paid, he couldn't give his full time, but he gave us all the time he could. His appointment, while he is a very brilliant man, his appointment to me was a liability because um, the, the markets we were, we were anxious to get into, which was particularly Fleet Street, could point to him as a government official and say a government official is in charge of state news. Therefore, it's suspect. We never got away from that. Brendan Mallon. A problem for the journalist, as Douglas Gageby found, was that the INA needed many outlets. You had to try to produce stories and pictures and sell them to papers and agencies abroad. Well, there weren't enough of them. That's all I can tell you. I suppose the chief successes would be in magazine articles. Uh, not many people would take a direct uh, uh, telex service into, the, into their offices, hardly any, in fact, so that the stuff was often telex to London and sent around six times a day by hand Why was to this? the newspaper offices. Well, I went to London a few times, and you always come up against this, but you're a government agency, aren't you? Well, we get stuff from various governments. We look at it all right, but, uh, you know, for the hard news, we like to have our own man there. Well, now, there's no reason why a, a paper shouldn't have uh, his own ma its own man there while the agency ran out the, the basic stuff. But you didn't see yourselves as a government agency? No, we didn't. We tried to walk as far away from that as possible. And as I say, I don't remember, Connor as managing director may have had it, I don't remember any minister twisting our arm. Coming towards the end of my second year, uh, I was asked by the Irish press if I was interested in coming back to help organise and found the new evening paper, the evening press. And I went with many regrets at leaving the agency, but I was a print journalist and I liked the sound of the rotaries. And I went and spent about six months organising it and then from September of 1954, editing the paper. And when you left the agency, did you still think it was secure? Nobody ever thought the agency was secure, not ever, not ever. We were living from year to year and from minister to minister, if you like. Nobody ever thought it was secure. 
Doomed from the start, as one journalist said. In a bid to keep going, the agency made an exchange deal with an American news agency, United Press International. The hope then would be that uh, as the material was being produced in INA by Irish people who had their fingers completely on the on the, the, the Irish pulses, as it were, that they could give a, a, a more accurate and a, a more colourful interpretation of, of the news as it was happening here, rather than some as it were, blow-in from London or, or New York, you know, who was totally strange to the Irish scene and wouldn't wouldn't be able to give the same uh, interpretation. Uh, yes, we were in competition, but then uh, remember also that uh, uh, as time went on, we established uh, a relationship with the United Press International, and in time, uh, INA became the Irish agent for UPI, for United Press, and in fact, that basement uh, uh, place in 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 um, in Fleet Street became the headquarters of of United Press and we uh, as it were changed our <coughs> robes and became UPI uh, staff people uh, for a, a large part of our working day we were both INA and UPI and uh, servicing what was then uh, I don't know perhaps the largest news agency in the world Marvellous experience for us too, of course. We we were really in the in the big time uh, when we were uh, when we were working under that arrangement. If the agency had established itself as a straightforward news agency, we would uh, uh, have you know, our story, if you like, the story, the Irish story, north and south, just the, the 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 picture, the snapshot, the encapsulation of what was going on would have come out from INA without bias, straightforward news reporting. That would have been valuable to many, many newspapers and radio stations and television around the world. Well, I mean, one person shot South Africa. The news is here with us within minutes. And we never got the INA really going. In hindsight, the question had to be asked, had the Irish news agency been set up at the right time or even in the right way? No, it certainly wasn't. It was formed uh, at the wrong time and uh, in the wrong way, uh, too much of a hurry, too narrow a base. Uh, Mr. McBride did, I think, understandably feel in a hurry. I think possibly the pressures within his own party had something to do with it. Uh, but, for example, I, I spoke of to Mr. Costello perhaps taking a, a lead in it, but uh, it ideally, if it should have been a matter for discussion by the leaders of all parties to see whether all party agreement could be reached and then from that an approach to the newspaper proprietors. But that would have been pretty slow and uh, politicians can't afford to be that slow. That's the problem. If the decision had been taken by Eamon de Valera uh, in uh, 1945-6 to six, at the end of the Second World War, we would have a news agency to this day. With a change of government in 1957, the inevitable closure came. Under a new austerity programme, the INA was wound up, even though it was to save the Exchequer just £30,000 a year. 
In Belfast, Patrick Scott was informed by telephone. An agency official came up from Dublin to collect the keys of the office. And he arrived, took the keys, phoned um, an auctioneer. So the van was sent to take the furniture away. Uh, the the um, filing cabinet was drawers were pulled out, the contents were on the floor. And that was that. Oh, I think it was a great pity that it did close, because it was relatively cheap. It did make some money. I think with time it would have found a place in the scheme of things here in Ireland. And I think especially looking over the last 16 years, we surely needed a voice that was constantly putting the Irish point of view abroad. It seemed to me that we never needed it more, Uh, but of course... Well, we haven't got it. And uh, now, of course, I think it it may be too late because the world press has realised that there are news stories in Ireland. They've got people here, good people here, sending the stuff abroad. It would need a complete rethink and reorganisation if you were going to start it now. But uh, it's one of the great might-have-beens.